You're listening to sermon audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. We begin our Advent series this year with the topic of hope. And the, the series theme is this idea of the gift swap. How many of you have ever been, ever been to a family party or a business party or something where you did like a gift swap, white elephant exchange, something like that, right? And typically the way those are set up is there's maybe one or two really nice gifts and the rest of them just are not worth very much. And when you get that one that's not worth very much, if, if your ticket, if the way you, you pulled the number or however your family or coworkers or whoever did it is such that you get to swap up, that's an exciting moment in that party that you get to take the Chia Pet and exchange it for like an iPod or something, right? Like that, That's an exciting moment in that party. And the whole focus of the next few weeks is that in Christ, we get to swap out junk. We get to swap out the things in our lives that weigh us down, that tear at us. We get to swap out the things in our lives that sometimes hinder us from being like Christ. And we get to swap those things out for him. His hope, his love, his joy, his peace. And as we'll get into the very final Sunday of this Advent series, him himself, his very life. And we get to swap that out for what he gives us. And so we start today with how he gives us hope. The English word hope occurs anywhere between 130 to upwards of 180 times in the English Bible, depending on which translation you use. I want to give you an example of where the translation differs, but so that we can see that the intent of it's the same. In Romans 15, 12, in the English Standard Version, which is what I preach out of and teach out of, Paul says, again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. But the King James Version of the same verse says, Again, Isaiah saith, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles trust. A different English word, but the same intent behind it. A different English word, but the same original meaning of the language behind it. And that is that there is a hope or there is a trust that we have in Christ, in God, in the work of the Holy Spirit. And hope and trust are always connected. They, they oftentimes are interchangeable here in this English language, in the Bible, the way it's translated. Because they are very interconnected. To have hope is to have trust. And to have hope in Jesus, to have hope in God, to have hope in the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to trust that they're going to do what they say they're going to do. We tend to, in our own everyday use of the word hope, have sort of a very different idea of what the word hope means. Webster's Dictionary states that the essential meaning of hope is to want something to happen or be true or think that it could happen or be true. And that's a very fingers-crossed mentality when we use the word hope. I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. Some of you maybe going out this past Friday were muttering this phrase as you walked out the door. Hopefully the crowds won't be too bad. And we use it in a very 
fingers crossed type of way that we just hope. We're not sure. Maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't. Maybe it'll rain. Maybe it won't. Maybe the crowds will be bad. Maybe they won't. But we don't really know for sure. But biblical hope is different. In the Old Testament, the primary word or words that are used for hope or sometimes for trust, those things are built upon the foundation and the confidence and security in God. That he is who he says he is, he will do what he says he's going to do, and that you can count on it. Matter of fact, those specific Hebrew words are words that don't leave any room for doubt. That when those of the Old Testament wrote about the hope that they had in God, they did so without wondering without fingers crossed, without doubt. In the New Testament, the, same, the, the Greek word there is similarly built on this same foundation of confidence and this same lack of doubt. That the hope that Jesus brings, that the, the hope that he gives us in his life through his birth, life, death, and resurrection is something that we can count on, that we don't have to wonder if it's going to come true or not or if it's going to come pass or not. And that is a part of biblical hope that we call expectation. That hope is expectant. That we look towards the promises of God. We look towards what he's already done and we look towards what he says he's going to do. And we don't allow earthly situations or earthly circumstances or even sometimes our own feelings and emotions to get in the way of that hope. We place confidence on and in him. A simple way to define it, and this is just a definition that I came up with this week, is that biblical hope is trusting that God will do what is necessary for his glory and our benefit. It's trusting that he's going to do what is necessary for his glory and for our benefit. And obviously in that very simple, very simple definition, we do have a little bit of a conflict right off the bat. Because what we think may be for our benefit... God may think otherwise. The way we think a certain situation or, or thing in our life should work out, God may have something different, and he may have something different in mind because his glory is at stake, and his glory is greater in the way he works it out than in the way we anticipated it working out. Let's say, for example, that you think a new job is the thing that would benefit you most. And you go through that process and you see that process and it's a job that's just fit for you and you know this is a career change I need to make and, and yet that doesn't come through. God's still glorified in that because he knows that there's something better for your benefit that you don't yet know about. And that's what biblical hope is. It's hoping and placing our faith and our trust in him to even understand that when it doesn't work out the way we anticipated, it doesn't mean hope in him has diminished. It just means he's working in a way that's different that we can't tell the outcome yet. Now, the opposite end of the spectrum of hope is despair. There are multiple antonyms, multiple words that are opposite of hope in the English language, but despair is a word that is uniquely associated with hope. If you were to look up definitions of despair, you would see things like this. They include phrases like to lose all hope or to be devoid or empty of hope or the complete loss or absence of hope. 
despair is not just getting to a point where we're unsure or where we have some negative feelings about situations. Despair are those moments where we get to a point where we think there's absolutely no way this turns out for the good. There's absolutely no way this reverses. There's no way that anything good comes out of this situation. And every person at some point in their lives or in multiple points in their lives have known despair. Losing a job, losing a loved one, just sheer loneliness in a person's life. Feeling like we lack purpose or lack direction. So many different things can lead to despair in our lives. And left unchecked, despair can lead us to a dark place. Left unchecked, despair can lead to depression. It can lead to feeling powerless. It can lead to feeling pessimistic about life. And it can lead to even darker journeys in our lives. When Dante wrote his famous work in the Middle Ages, Divine Comedy, he wrote of a sign that existed above the entry into hell that said, Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Make no doubt about it. Once hope is abandoned, It is a dark, dark road ahead. But Jesus, Jesus lives to enter your despair. He lives to enter your life and my life. He lives to break through the darkness. He lives to reveal to us hope is not lost. And it it may not be fully seen yet, but we're not forgotten. That there's no situation or conflict or anything else in our lives that is greater than who he is and greater than the hope that we have in him. And we remember and celebrate in this season his birth, but understand we remember and celebrate his birth with an eye towards Good Friday, with an eye towards Easter, that in his birth, that would end in death, and that death that would end in resurrection, that the resurrection serves as the ultimate reminder that he provides all victory over despair. And it's through hope in him. There's so many accounts and stories of despair and hope in the Bible. Today we're choosing a story to give to you that is probably not one you would imagine we would use at Christmas time. There's no angels in this story singing or heralding the birth of Christ. There are no wise men visiting the infant child at his home. There are no shepherds rejoicing at the good news that Jesus has been born. Today, the story that's going to be presented to you is this. That there's simply a woman caught in despair, and Jesus is her only hope. Overwhelming fear, total despair, feeling like there was no hope for me at all. These were just some of the emotions that I felt on that day. You may have heard my story before, but let me tell you what really happened that day. I don't know how they found me. I thought I was being so secretive with my sinful life. Truth is, I hated the things that I did. There were reasons why I was in that place in my life. Reasons that may or may not make a difference of how you feel about me. But today, those reasons are not important for my life has been changed forever. Perhaps they knew where I was because some of them had visited me themselves. 
Perhaps they knew where I was because they set a trap for me. I guess it doesn't matter how they were able to catch me, just that they caught me. When they dragged me from that room, they didn't even give me an opportunity to cover myself. I was brought to the temple, that most holy place, in a very unholy state, and every eye was fixed on me. I'd never seen a crowd like that before. They were all here to hear this man named Jesus teach. I'd heard about him and the claims that he had made, how he was the son of God. He had just taught at the temple a few days earlier and exclaimed if anyone was thirsty, they could come to him and drink. I really didn't have any idea what that meant, but I knew I had never heard anyone saying anything like that before. As they dragged me into the view of Jesus, I couldn't mask my shame and guilt. Why now? Why, after all of these years of knowing what I was doing, did these religious people care? Why was I doing what I was doing? I knew I was being used by them, but I didn't know for what purpose. Then it became clear. I heard them say, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? And suddenly, I knew what was going on. It was no secret that the Pharisees hated Jesus. They wanted to put him in a no-win position. If he gave them permission to stone me, then all this talk of compassion, grace, love would all be ruined. But if he prevented them from carrying out the judgment, then he would be seen as the enemy of God. And no enemy of God's law could be God's son. I wanted to cry out for mercy. I wanted to cry out for grace. I wanted to cry out that I was being unfairly singled out. After all, the law of Moses did say that I should be killed, but it also said the man should be also. Where was he? I wanted to cry out all of these things and more, but I knew I had no voice. I resigned myself to what I knew what was going to happen. No one really cared about me. No one would miss me. At least in death, I would finally be free from the pain. Suddenly, I heard a murmuring from the crowd. It was soft at first, and then it grew louder and louder. I heard the religious leaders demand an answer from Jesus. I strained my neck trying to see around the men in front of me. It looked like Jesus was playing in the dust on the ground. And as I looked closer, I could see that he wasn't playing. He was writing something. I couldn't make it out, whatever it was, but I knew that the Pharisees didn't like it. They had moved from being frustrated with Jesus to becoming petrified themselves. As a few of them continued to demand an answer, Jesus stood and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he dropped back to the ground and continued to write. My body ached with the pain of hearing my death sentence. I couldn't believe Jesus said, All right. I began to sob uncontrollably and just waited for the impact of the first stone, and I prayed that it would be over quickly. 
I could hear the shuffling of feet around me, but I didn't dare look up to see what was going on. I assumed it was the crowd positioning itself at a distance from me so they would not be hit themselves. Or perhaps they were going to join in with the judgment and they were taking their position to throw. I finally mustered up enough courage and lifted my head. And what I saw was unbelievable. The religious leaders had gone. The crowd was still there, but the leaders had gone. I was told later by someone in the crowd that as Jesus continued to write in the dust, the leaders had begun to walk away slowly, one by one. What was it that Jesus was writing? I didn't know then, and I don't know now, but it changed the whole direction of that moment for me. Suddenly, I was very aware that I was alone with Jesus. Oh, the crowd of the temple was still there, but it was like me and Jesus were there all by ourselves. He stood and said to me, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? I could faintly answer, no, Lord. Jesus responded, neither do I. Go and sin no more. I stood frozen for a moment. This teacher of the law wasn't going to condemn me? This man stood up for me to other men, men who would use me for their advantage as men had done all my life. And then he lets me go. No condemnation, no judgment, no shame. What freeing words he uttered, go and sin no more. Not only was I free, but he was reminding me of what had fueled my despair in the first place. Sin had promised me freedom, but had enslaved me instead. Sin had enticed me with promises of love and affection, but had left me hating my emotions and longing for something more. The despair I had was replaced by hope. Hope that I would not be condemned from my past and hope that I had a future that would be better than the life I knew. All through the love and compassion, of God's son, Jesus. Trading despair for hope. I can't begin to tell you what a glorious day that was in my life. And it all happened because of Jesus. If you're unfamiliar with the scriptures, that's the story of the woman caught in adultery. the end of John 7 and going into chapter 8. If you want to read it for yourself this week. And it's a woman who's in complete despair. Despair for her very life. Despair for all of the social stigma and attention that she would have received as a woman being caught in that way. The despair of being used by people who were supposed to be lovers of God who were using her to try to prove some theological point. And because of Jesus, she moves from despair to hope. You might catch yourself thinking today, well, my, my despair is nothing like hers. 
My despair is small, it's insignificant, it's not life-threatening, but I want you to understand that there is no insignificant despair to Jesus. There's no small despair to Jesus. And I want you to know that even small despair left unchecked leads to great doubt. And it's why we must diligently trade our despair for his hope. Some of you may also be thinking, well, that that was great for her and that story, but my despair is still very real because my story didn't end that way. My story didn't end with what needed to happen happened. My story didn't end in a good note. Just as there's no small despair that's too insignificant, there's no great despair that's too large for Jesus. The same Jesus that answered the despairing cry of the host who ran out of wine is the same Jesus who answered the despairing cry of this woman caught in adultery. That the same Jesus who ran to and and answered the cry of the fisherman who said, there are no fish here, and said, put out your nets and pull them up, is the same Jesus who answered the despairing cry of two sisters who mourned the loss of their brother. He provided hope then, and he lives to provide it today where is your despair they say oh well life's life's pretty good I don't don't really have my uh, my guess is if we search hard enough and are introspective enough there's something that we have despair about a situation in our life a situation in a a friend or a family's life a a situation that's going on culturally or socially around us And in that story, it specifically says that the woman found herself alone with Jesus. So the crowds were there, but she found herself alone with Jesus. Would you find yourself alone with Jesus today? Would you find yourself alone and listen to him provide hope? Listen to him provide comfort? Listen to him provide truth? Would you find yourself alone with Jesus to say there's nothing so small or so great of despair in my life that his hope cannot overcome? Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.